Okay, question for you. Uh, question for you. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night in an unpleasant way? How many of you have ever been woken up in the middle of the night in an un- Okay, by something or someone. Uh, I got woken up earlier this week because my son, who's six, sneezed on my face. On the face. And I woke up, you know, the first sneeze woke me up. I didn't hear it. I just felt the mist. And he was loading up for sneeze too. And I managed to get out of way just in time for that. I still got a little bit of a cold. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, my story compared to another story I read this week is nothing. Last weekend, 63-year-old Wanda Denhalter was asleep in her bed when something got her attention and woke her up. She heard a rumbling outside of her house. Not knowing what it was, she rolled away from the noise just in time to avoid disaster. Check out this story. Saturday turned out to be a nightmare for a woman sleeping in her Utah home. A 12-foot-long boulder came crashing through her bedroom at 3 a.m. The 63-year-old woman was home alone when the rock came tumbling into her home. The Salt Lake City Tribune reports that she suffered a broken jaw and sternum. Fortunately, no one else was hurt. It's unclear what exactly caused the boulder to come loose. Broken jaw and sternum. Wow. If, if she had rolled the other way, it would have been tragic. It, broken jaw, broken sternum when a 12-foot-long boulder comes through her room in the middle of the night. The noise got her attention, and she took action uh, that saved her life. Uh, I want you to know that there are times in your life where God tries to get your attention. And the action you choose to take can make the difference between disaster and tragedy and being spared what is coming. Uh, There are times in life when God tries to get all of our attention, and this morning God tries to get the attention of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, We've been working our way through the Old Testament, and we're on Moses Part 3. Last week we talked about Moses and the burning bush, how God sent him on a rescue mission to Egypt. The week before that we looked at Moses' birth and how he was raised up in the palace and prepared for the life that God had for him. But today it's a showdown. It's a showdown because God wants Pharaoh to hear his voice and to respond to the warning. Now this story is very helpful for us, uh, for you and me today, because it's going to answer four questions for us regarding how God tries to get our attention, why God tries to get our attention, and then what happens if we respond, and what happens if we don't. Let's pray, and then we'll hear this most famous story from the Bible about the plagues and the Passover. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you at the beginning of this message, knowing that you have a lot to say to us. This is not just an ancient folk tale. This is not just a bedtime story. This is something you did in history to teach us about how you interact with each one of us. Lord, give us ears to hear and help us to hear what you are saying through your word this morning. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles up to Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11. Uh, we're actually, uh, I'm going to, for the first point, I'm going to give you a synopsis, an overview of what happens in Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10. So four chapters in the first point, I'm going to just cover it. Uh, we're not going to read all it. It take forever, okay? Uh, but, but then, in the second point, we're going to get to Exodus chapter 11, okay? So what happens in Exodus chapter, chapter 7. Well, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They had no freedom. 
They were treated harshly. The pay was poor. They were watched every moment. They were beaten and had no appeal process. They were whipped. They were belittled. It was forced labor. Uh, And maybe you're thinking, that's the job I go to every day. It sounds like I can relate to them. They were in utter misery, and there was nothing they can do to change it. The Bible calls that bondage. But God sent Moses as a deliverer to rescue them. So Moses showed up to the Pharaoh, and I think you know what he said, right? Let my, what did he say? Let my people go. Exodus 5.2, we'll put it on the screen. Let's all say this together. These are the Pharaoh's words. Lift up your voices. Here we go. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I, you, don't, you, you need like a little more attitude. Like He's not saying this like, who is the Lord that I should? All right, so we're going to start at uh, I do not know, and you're going to have to have a little Pharaoh attitude to you. Ready? Here we go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So basically, Pharaoh is daring God to act. Let my people go. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him and obey his voice? Because he dared God to act, God gave him one of the most famous wake-up calls in all of history. Write this down in your bulletin. It's the first question the Bible helps us answer. Hey, has God recently given you a wake-up call? You could go ahead and fill that in in your bulletin. Uh, Has God recently given you a wake-up call? Uh, We're going to learn now hearing about the plagues God sent on Pharaoh and his nation, what God does to get our attention. Plague number one, water was turned to blood. Uh, The water, the ponds, the lakes, the rivers, fishing trip canceled because Moses at his command turned all the water to blood. Now, the word for blood could mean the color or the substance. It's probably more that it turned blood red and it became toxic in some form. Uh, and, and the fish died and they couldn't drink it. And so they had to dig holes all along the Nile River to get their water. All right, I don't know about you, but if blood red water started coming out of my faucet, I might wonder why. Would you wonder why? I'd wonder why. Uh, Pharaoh brushed it off. His magicians did something similar, and he ignored the first plague. Well, the second plague was frogs. God brought frogs up from the Nile, and they filled the houses all over the palace and all over all of Egypt. They, frogs came, and then the third one is gnats, uh, swarms of gnats. Uh, now, I know what you're thinking. Like, if God's going to take it to this guy, frogs? Like, really? <laughs> gnats? Why not bees, right? I mean, they've got... Uh, okay. You've got to understand a few things. Uh, first of all, the Egyptians thought that there wasn't just a god. They were pantheistic, so they kind of thought that things could be gods too. So they believed in lots of gods. They believed Pharaoh was a form of a god, but they also would believe that like the Nile itself was a god, giver of life. And they also believed like there was a frog god in the shape of a frog, and these frogs were kind of somewhat you know, holy as well. So What God is doing is he's taking their faith in their gods and one by one he's demolishing what they are holding on to. It's not just frog. Like, I know, (laughs) if I have an enemy and he's really like, and I really want to get him, I'm not going to be like, I'm going to fill his house with frogs. I want him hunted down by a pack of wild gnats. Uh." That doesn't sound tough. But but if, if they believe that that's their gods, whom they're trusting for protection and for provision, then God's taking down the thing that to them is most important and most powerful. 
All right. So he took out their water, the Nile, turned it to blood. He overcame their faith in, in this God that, that handled lo- frogs and, and gnats. And, and by the way, uh, they didn't, you know, these gnats, they could have been mosquitoes. They were like a biting insect. So I'm imagining like them covered head to toe in mosquitoes like morning, noon, and night. Just swarmed by them, right? And they didn't have off back then. Not deep woods off, not family style off. They didn't have the sportsman version. They didn't have any of that. No hope. And he's just swarming around. Wow. Frogs, gnats, water turned to blood. At the gnats, the magicians couldn't reproduce it anymore. Right? Hard to train a mosquito to do your tricks. Frogs, maybe. So check out what they said. This is Exodus 12, 12. First, God is saying this. Uh, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. It's clear he's going after their gods. Next, Exodus 8, 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is, the gnats, this is the finger of God. Hey, wake up. We can't do this. He's telling the truth. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So God, when, when we don't respond to his wake-up calls, things get worse. They went round one, two, and three with God. They got back in for round four. So the fourth plague was swarms of flies, which destroyed everything. Flies everywhere. I'd imagine them as being those big horse flies. Just land on you and take a bite out of you, and you're missing some skin. What was that? All over. In your food, in your hair, on your body. You can't get rid of them. Flies, swarms of flies everywhere, destroyed everything. He still didn't listen. Plague five, all the livestock of Egypt died. See, now back then they had to have their food. They had to make it themselves each day. And, uh, and all the livestock from which they would make their meals and do their commerce died. Wow. Things are getting serious. Still, he did not respond. The sixth plague, he struck their flesh. Boils broke out on all people. And we're not sure what kind of skin disease this was, but it was something more than just skin because it says that the magicians of Pharaoh couldn't stand in Moses' presence. They were suffering so greatly and in such anguish. It may have gotten on the inside or whatever. They couldn't, they couldn't even function. They were crawling around on the ground like animals. They couldn't even get up. They were in so much agonizing pain. And Pharaoh did not respond. So the seventh plague got even worse. God sent hail and thunder and lightning. It rained down from heaven. Fire fell. And God said, anyone and anything that's outside will die. And we're not talking like golf ball size hail, okay? We're probably not even talking like bowling ball. Like, like I'm thinking beach balls, like rock hail, like falling with lightning and thunder from the sky. Destroyed all the crops. Killed anyone who didn't listen and was outside. You think at that point you would have responded? Not Pharaoh. He wasn't hearing the wake-up call yet. But Pharaoh did start to play a game with God. Now, we like to play games with God, too. The first game that Pharaoh played with God is, it's called this. If you want to play this game at home, here's the name of it. It's called, I'm sorry when I have to be. All right? Maybe you've, we've all played this game with God. But it's, wow, a whole lot of suffering and pain is coming into my life. Uh, I'm sorry for now. Tell God to stop the pain. And then tomorrow... Nothing has changed. This is a game 
way it goes is I give a temporary insincere apology to try and limit how much suffering God brings into my life. I'm, I'm sorry when I have to be. And if God's going to give me what I want, then, then maybe I'll keep coming after him. But if I don't get what I want, if God keeps the pain up, then I'm not sorry anymore. The game is called I'm sorry when I have to be. And guess what? God doesn't play that game with Pharaoh, and he won't play that game with you. So plague eight comes. Plague eight is the locust. So the crops that had come up that were destroyed by the hail, and this could have taken months. This did take months. Then the new crops started coming up, perhaps the fall crops, and then locusts came and devoured them. So where's their food coming from? They don't know. And then Pharaoh decided to play his second game with God. The second game is called Let's Make a Deal. All right. Have you ever played this game with God? It's called Let's Make a Deal. I'll change if you stop. It's called Let's Make a Deal. Uh, he started saying, okay, I'll let some of the Israelites go, but not all. I'll do half of what God's asking me to do as long as the pain and the suffering stop. So the first game is like, I'm sorry when I have to be. And then, and then the second game is let's make a deal. God doesn't play that game either. Okay, God doesn't bargain with us. And he didn't respond to Pharaoh's game. So the ninth plague came. This one is terrifying. Um, what would it be like if you walked out of here today and it was pitch black out? No sun. Dark. And not just dark, but there's no lights like up. No street lights. You could see this far in front of your face. You say, that's strange. Then you go home, you go to bed, you wake up tomorrow morning and the sun didn't come up. And it doesn't come up all day long. It's pitch black all day long. And you say, well, that's really strange. And then you go to bed and then the next day you wake up and the sun doesn't come up. And three days in a row, you see no light. It's pitch black. What would that do to the crops eventually that would come up? What would that do to commerce and travel? What would that do to... You can't function. Three days, God gave them the plague of pitch darkness. No dawn. Their economy was now non-existent. Their stock market was at zero. This was the threat of total annihilation. Everyone was in danger of starving and dying. Why? Because the Pharaoh would not respond as God was trying to get his attention. And Pharaoh wasn't even ready yet. Even after three days of pitch black, he was not ready yet. Hey, ask yourself this. Has God recently given you a wake-up call? Is God trying to get your attention? Well, I don't know. He hasn't, he hasn't like filled my house with frogs or anything. I mean, how do I know if he's trying to get my attention? All right. There are ways. God will get your attention in several ways. He can send a broken relationship into your life that you can't repair. I've tried to fix my marriage. It's just, it's not working. Uh, I can't save it. There's a financial crisis that we didn't see coming. We can't fix it and things are tight and we're fighting and there's fear and frustration and, and hey, that might be God trying to get your attention. There's a health problem that you can't heal and, and the doctors can't explain and, and guess what? God is showing you as you reach the end of your own power how much you need him. God is trying to get your attention to alert you to his presence, but, but are you seeing in your misery and helplessness that you need him? Uh, see, the sad thing is when God gives us wake-up calls, we like to just reach over and hit the snooze button, right? We like to put it off to avoid the big questions, the reality, um, 
One of my favorite movies ever is Groundhog Day. Have you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? Yeah. Um, I'll explain it in case you haven't seen it. And where were you when this came out? But <laughs> Bill Murray gets stuck in the same day. And he has to live the same day over and over and over again until he gets it right. So every morning he wakes up at the same time. So he develops kind of a relationship with his alarm clock. Check out this video that features that relationship. on, i got to watch it. It's one of those you can't turn off. Uh, but that's what we do with God, isn't it? He gives us a wake-up call. He tries to get our attention. And we keep putting it off. Or we play the games of, I'm sorry when I have to be. Or we play the games of, let's make a deal. But, but true, lasting, heart change. An altered relationship with the God who loves us is the only thing that God will accept. Um, has God recently given you a wake-up call? It's time to hear the warning. It's time to receive what God is saying. And not like Pharaoh, not to harden your heart. Because things get increasingly worse. Well, here's the second thing. Why is God trying to get my attention anyway? Why does he just leave me alone? Second thing, write it down. Do you see God is trying to save you from what is coming? Write that down. Do you see, second question, do you see God is trying to save you from what is coming? And now we're going to read from Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Go ahead and look there. Exodus 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. This is it. This is the tenth. This is the big one. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. I mean, the Egyptians are ready to get rid of these people. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Listen. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. You're going to have like 100,000 funerals this week. The firstborn in every home will die tonight. What is God trying to wake Pharaoh up to? What is he trying to warn him of? Do you see God's trying to save you from what's coming? You see what happens when we again and again... Turn it off and not listen and put it off. And God's patience will run out. 
God's patience. He gave the time. Midnight, my patience runs out. All right, but this seems severe. Like the Pharaoh's the guy. What's with the rest of the people? Well, Pharaoh represented his nation. By the way, blood was on their hands too because as Moses was born, they were, they were overseeing the execution of every boy of the Israelites, right? And God has delayed his judgment for that. He oversaw as the, as the Egyptians did this and killed all the babies of the Israelites. God waited and waited and waited. And then he said, tonight, midnight, last chance. His reasoning is spelled out in Exodus 4, to 23. We'll put it up on the screen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God announced it in advance. Tonight is the night. And do you know that God likely will not tell you when your time is coming, right? Likely he won't appear and say, uh, six years, two months, and 22 days, and, and 14 hours and from now, you're, he won't likely appear and tell you how long you have. Uh, very interesting that he did it. And it affected the lives of so many people. Midnight! Tonight, it's your time. I don't know if you'd want to know your time. I don't want to know my time, right? How, how much longer do you have? What if God gave you a little number? That's what he did here. And the number was a lot shorter than everyone may have assumed. A recent study in our day has shown that, uh, that one out of every one human will die. Some things haven't changed. And even those Egyptians that didn't die at midnight, they eventually did. Uh, and it leaves us wondering what happens right after we die. You see, because the earthly judgment that God brought only led to the, what happens in the afterlife. And the Bible clears that up for us. It does not leave us guessing. There's a few verses that point that out. What happens after I die? Well, Hebrews 9.27, we'll put it up on the screen. Hey, raise your voices. Let's say this together. And just as it is appointed for man to die... Say that word again. And after that comes... Hebrews 9.27 says it's one chance. You get one chance in this life, and this is preparation for eternity. And a second after you die, there's, there's a judgment. Now, there's a great judgment later where every soul that has ever lived comes in his presence. But the Bible says one second after you die, there's a judgment. And that judgment only leads to one of two places. Heaven is real. It's paradise. It's forever. And people are there right now. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, what day? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. But in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's clear that one second after a person who's unsaved dies, they, the torment begins. It's heaven and it's hell. And God is warning, not just of the earthly death that's coming, but of the eternal judgment that follows immediately. He wants to prepare us for that moment. And the heart of God is spelled out in 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. We'll put that up on the screen. But it says he urges that prayer be, uh, be given for all people. It says this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. The warnings are given on earth. So that we can be ready for one moment after we die. God wants all to be saved. 
Ecclesiastes 7.2, this is the NIV version. Let's all say this together. Death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. And here God's getting Pharaoh's attention, but God's also getting our attention. He's saying, hey, your time's going to come. Hey, the moment's going to come when you cross over and you can never go back. And this is the final warning for these Egyptians. It's tonight. It's coming tonight. Pharaoh is still not ready to hear it. Hey, have you recently been given a wake-up call? Do you see God is trying to save you from what is coming? Do you understand what happens one second after you die? It's eternal and irreversible. And here's the third thing. Do you believe God's judgment will fall on you? You can write that down. Do you believe God's judgment will fall on you? In theory, most people would believe in a heaven and a hell that you would talk to. But most people would not believe. They've done surveys and it's like 0.05% of people would actually say they think they're going to hell. Point, like a fraction of a percent. 99.5% of all people in the United States would assume they're going to end up in heaven in some form. Do you believe God's judgment will fall on you? Well, check out Exodus 12, verse 3. Exodus 12, verse 3. I'm coming after Pharaoh, taking out the firstborn. Then he starts talking to the Israelites. Verse 3 of chapter 12. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now this might seem a little strange. Like, I'm going to kill so many people in Egypt tonight, they're going to let you go. Now let's talk about dinner. I'd like you to take, and he gives them dinner plans. Like, take a lamb. This kind of lamb, uh, kill it at this time, make a meal for yourself. And he starts telling them about how they're supposed to eat. And it's almost like, why is he, why are we talking about this? This, I don't understand. Um, Well, verse 7 says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. This is fascinating too. Uh, God's involving them in something that was going to become a celebration, a festival in Israel called the Passover. They would celebrate it every year. And he's, he's creating a festival, a day of remembrance for what he's about to do. All right? And it's called Passover. And he's giving them these things. And he knows how to, he knows how to give guys something that they understand. All right? He's talking to a nation full of, of the men here. And he's like, okay, I want you to get an animal and kill it. And the guys are like, all right, we can do that. And then I want you to have a great dinner. All right? We're, we're down with that. Then I want you to paint something. All right? We like to paint. And he's, he's like putting this thing together so that they get it. And these are things that guys understand. But he's trying to send them a message. All right, what's the message? Well, look at verse 11. In verse 11 it says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land 
of Egypt. Wow. We learn something profound about God here. Okay, he doesn't say to the Israelites, it's coming on them, but wink, wink, we're okay. You're good. He says, it's coming on you. When my judgment comes, see, what are they learning here? They're learning that Jew and Egyptian are equally sinful in God's sight and equally deserving of God's wrath to fall on them. When the destroying angel comes, he's saying, you got to do this thing. I'm giving you away. It's coming. It's coming tonight on you. What made Israel different from Egypt is not that they were less sinful. It's that they heard the warning, heard the wake-up call, and responded in faithful obedience. Do you believe God's judgment will fall on you? You, Moses, you Israelites, God's wrath is coming tonight on you. And it will come on all of us. Romans 2.5, we'll put it on the screen, says, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The Bible says elsewhere that we were born sinful. We're, we're children. By nature, we are objects of wrath. By nature, God's wrath is on us. Something has to change that. And so, God basically sees two different groups of people when he comes that night to judge. And this first door here would represent the Egyptians, the first group of people that God sees. And what he sees when he passes over is their sin. He sees the darkness of their hearts. He sees the depravity. He keeps records, the Bible says, of everything they've ever done wrong, everything they've ever said, every thought, every motive, every good thing they were supposed to do that they left undone. And that's called sin. And God said when he's going to pass over that night, he's going to judge the sin of all those in Egypt. And that sin, the Bible says the wages of sin is, you know what it says? Is death. The wages of sin is death. And really, every, every hour you've lived, God has patiently been postponing your judgment in love hoping that you would come to the understanding that this is what God sees and that sin provokes God's wrath. Um, Wrath is God's holy opposition to all sin. We're glad that God has this attribute of holiness because I don't know about you, but I would prefer to live in a heaven forever that doesn't have sin. Would you like, can you pick a sin you'd like be okay with in heaven? Can you pick one? Like the first day in heaven, if your iPhone gets stolen, wouldn't you be like, what's this? This is supposed to be heaven. Your house gets broken into, right? What's this? This is supposed to be what? Can't be heaven with sin, right? See, See, your own conscience and heart tells you that if you want to be in a heaven forever, God must do away with all sin in the entire universe for good. That's why his wrath is what accomplishes that. He has to do away with it. He's also a just God and everything wrong that's ever happened to you where there's outrage in your heart. That's a testimony that God's placed in there to show you that wrong is wrong. And God will one day 
bring justice to the earth, but it's also supposed to awaken you to your own need because God's justice is coming on your sins. So what's our hope? Well, we'd like to think there's, there's things we tell ourselves. Like, well, yes, okay, first we'll say, well, yeah, but I'm not like as sinful as some other people, right? So by comparison, I'm not as darkened, but God's not going to accept that. That can't turn away God's wrath from you. We also would like to say, well, you know, I haven't committed the big ones. Like, I do little, but I haven't done the big sins. And God's like, by nature, we're children of wrath. Um, We also kind of tell ourselves that there's so much good that we do. So, you know, like our sins, yeah, they happen, they're spread out. But like the good, I've like off-balanced it. On the ledger sheet, I turn out pretty, and God's like, no, my, my wrath comes on sin. Your good deeds are like filthy rags to me. They can't do away with your sin. Well, then what hope do we have? If, if God's judgment is coming on us and if he's trying to save us from what's coming, then what hope do we have? Well, well, God started a day of remembrance. And what he said was, he said, I want you to take a lamb, and it was called the Passover lamb, and I want you to sacrifice it. And then, and then I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to go outside and paint it on the door frame." Um, and, and he said, when I see the blood that you have painted on the doorframe, the destroying angel who is coming to judge sin will pass over your house. By faith, they had to kill an animal, and by faith, they had to paint the blood on the house, and then by faith they had to get dressed, eat dinner in a hurry, and they had to get ready. Why? Because God said, I'm going to come at midnight and deliver you. Pharaoh will let you go. I will release you from bondage. What hope do we have when God's wrath and his judgment come? What hope do we have? Well, the only hope that he gave them back then is an animal must die. I'll see the blood and my wrath will be turned away. It was because something died in their place that God's wrath could pass over. The wages of sin again is death. So God said if this lamb dies in your place, I will see the blood and I will pass over your house. Wow. It would only be the blood of a lamb that could save them from God's coming wrath. Well, check out Exodus 12, 28. Let's see what happened. In, in 12, 28, it says, Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Stark contrast to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, no, I'll do half of it. Forget you. Get out of here. If I see you again, I'll kill you. And the Israelites were like, They did it. It says they bowed their heads and worshipped in verse 27. They did it. Verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
What would that morning be like? You wake up and every neighbor on your street, every city in your state, every state in your country, every home that didn't have the blood over it, someone died. Wow. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you, the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Hey, wrath and judgment fell. And God did that to warn us of the wrath and the judgment that are coming. And by the way, this was not the worst. The worst wrath that ever fell before this, we learned about it, was in the day of Noah when God flooded the globe and everyone died except one family of people. And God said once more, there's a day where not by water but by fire my judgment and my, my wrath is coming. It's only a matter of time. Either you slip off into eternity through death or God comes. But judgment is coming. Do you believe God's judgment will fall on you? Well, God's judgment fell on them and and they learned something about God. Though, though sin made all of them guilty, they could trust the sacrifice to turn away God's wrath. And it wasn't the blood. It was the obedience and the faith that was demonstrated by the blood. We've got a verse we're going to put up here on the screen. This is Hebrews eleven twenty-eight, telling us about Moses. Hey, lift your voices up. Let's say this together. Here we go. By faith, he kept Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You see, the blood was a symbol of the faith. The faith in what they heard. And this was all supposed to get us ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the New Testament, if you're thinking to yourself, well, how can I escape? How can I know I'm going to heaven? It's not get a lamb and, and paint your door. No. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 this. For Christ, our, what does it call him? Has been sacrificed. You see, this whole take the lamb and take the blood and was getting the world ready for Christ to come. And when Christ died a bloody, awful, horrible death on the cross, God says, think of this. Think of when my judgment came and think of who was saved and who wasn't. And think of Christ as the Passover lamb. And think of his blood as the only hope you and I have of God's wrath passing over us. In fact, in John 1.29, John the Baptist said this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the, listen, Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of Egypt or Israel, but of the world. Wow. And in John 3.36, it says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. This story shows us that Jesus died to turn away God's wrath. Listen, the only hope you have of standing in the judgment and being welcomed into God's holy presence forever is if the death of Jesus Christ turns away God's wrath for you. That's it. It's your only hope. And if you apply by faith what Christ did at the cross for you, you will be saved. Here's the fourth question that we're at, that's answered here. Has God recently given you a wake-up call and 
Do you see he's trying to save you from what is coming? And do you believe his judgment will fall on you? Well, then fourth, have you trusted Jesus to save you? To save you. And I didn't say to teach you. I didn't say to help you. I didn't say to... I said to save you. Because when God's wrath comes, when you die, you need a savior. You don't need a teacher. You need a savior. And listen, this is fascinating and and profound, but the night that Jesus was betrayed, they were eating a meal. The Last Supper is what you know it as. But do you know what night that was? It was the Passover meal. So if you were to walk around Jerusalem, not all, but some of the more devout Jews would have had the blood on their doorposts as a reminder of what God had done 1,500 years earlier for Moses. They would have slaughtered the lamb. They would have by faith put the blood up to remember the time that God passed over their sins because of the blood of the lamb. Listen, it was that same time when Jesus would die on the cross. Do you see the connection? Do you see what God was trying to teach us through this story of Pharaoh and Moses? And Jesus gave us a new way to commemorate that night. No more are Christians to kill a lamb and paint their doorframe. He, he started a new tradition that night. Do you know what it's called? It's called communion. And as he stood up in front of his disciples, the Lamb of God, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Well, it doesn't go on the doorframe anymore. Where does it go? It goes in the, in the soul, in the heart. That's symbolic of your faith that the blood of the Lord Jesus is the only thing that could cleanse you within of your sin. Do you see that? The only hope of salvation you have is the blood of Christ who was sacrificed at the cross for you can cleanse your heart and turn away the wrath of God. You can't trust any other thing. God doesn't accept any other thing. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. At the cross, do you know what happened at the cross? At the cross as Jesus hung there, he didn't do anything wrong. The wrath of God was poured out on him in full for all the sins of the world. That's what happened at the cross. His body was broken for your sins. His blood was shed for your sins. He was your substitute. He died in your place. It's only when you apply that death to your life can you have a clear conscience. Can you be free in God's courtroom? Can you be innocent and can you be welcomed as a beloved child forever in His presence? It's the only way. So let me ask you this. Is there a time in your life when by faith you have received the Lamb of God to wash away your sins? I don't mean like Pharaoh, did you play games with God where you said I'm sorry for a few oopses and boo-boos and promise to never do it again. I mean, have you said, I am, I am sinful. I cannot save myself. And one day I'll go to hell. Have you faced that? Do you agree with God at what he sees in your heart? If there's not been a moment in your life when you face that, it says that God's wrath is still on you. But in love, God gave his only son. He so loved the world. And there has to come a moment when you say, I, by faith, trust the Lord as my sacrificial savior. And my only eternal abiding hope is that his blood will turn away God's wrath. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to receive Christ as your savior. 
The way you can do that, you know there's two ways in the Bible where God says you can show publicly that you've become a follower of Christ privately. The first one is baptism, and I would, it's the first thing saved people do. I would challenge you to get baptized. But the other one is, he says, of communion, do this in remembrance of me. And the ushers are coming forward right now. They're going to pass out the trays, and I'm going to challenge you to do this. When the tray comes by into your hands, you have a choice to make. And if you have become at some point or are becoming today a follower of Christ, pick up both cups. Listen, if you don't have your mind made up, don't, don't pick up the cups. Use this as a time of personal reflection. But pick those cups up, and then when I come back up, we're going to partake of the communion together, and I'm going to allow you to pray and give your life to Christ, perhaps for the first time. The ushers are going to pass it out. Go ahead and take, and then wait, and we'll take together.